Good morning. Thank you for the invitation to share a message from God's Word with you this morning. Appreciate that opportunity very much. Uh, now that I'm serving on the campus and the administrative staff, I don't get an opportunity to preach very often, and I, I'm still adjusting to that. And, and so it, it is truly a privilege to be able to be here and to share uh, the message from God's Word with you this morning. Uh, I'm going to be preaching on Luke 1, the Gospel text. I'm going to focus on just a portion of that passage. I'm going to read for you right now verses 68 through 75 of Luke chapter 1, where Zechariah says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has come and has redeemed His people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He said through His holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Let's pray. Father, add add your blessing to the proclamation of your word by your Holy Spirit. Open it to us and accomplish your desire in each of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The text before us this morning has historically been referred to as the Benedictus. And that comes from the practice of the early church of entitling a text uh, of Scripture by the first word in that passage. And in the Latin Bible, the very first word in verse 68 is Benedictus, which means blessed or blessed or praise be. And that's very appropriate, isn't it? As we think of the blessing that God provided mankind in the Savior that He provided at Christmas. Now, I've entitled my message this morning, A Song of Salvation. And that, too, is an appropriate title, for this text is really a hymn. I don't think he sang it when he... When he um, made this declaration, but Zacharias certainly had a song in his heart. It, it's akin to a, to a hymn, a hymn being a, 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 an outpouring of, of praise to God, a, a hymn extolling the virtues of God or the great acts of God. And, and that certainly is what Zechariah is doing here in this text. In fact, in a sense, I suppose we could call it the song of salvation because it tells us, again, the story of salvation. And it bids us to sing along in our own hearts with joy and rejoicing. Now, before we consider the message of the song itself, I think I need to set the context for you. This song, as I've already mentioned, is from the lips of Zechariah. And it is the song of, of salvation. And, and it is remarkable, I think, from several standpoints. First of all, I want to draw your attention and make you aware of the exuberant confidence that Zechariah expresses here. This praise that he gives to God for the salvation he has provided mankind is expressed in an unusual way. Zechariah is looking forward. 
He is prophesying. He is foretelling a great event that is yet to occur. And yet, when he does it, he uses past tense verbs to describe the action. Now, that's unusual, isn't it? Theologians call that the prophetic perfect. And the reason for the use of the prophetic perfect is you read or you speak about something that is yet to occur, but you have such confidence that it will come to pass completely that you can look at it and pronounce it in terms of past tense verbs. It's a it's a sure deal. It's a done deal in in that one sense, because it is God who has spoken it. It is God who has made the promise. It is God who has given his word and God cannot lie. And so we read then he has come, not he is coming or will come. He has redeemed and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Zechariah, as I just mentioned, then was so certain in his own heart and mind that God would completely fulfill this prophecy, this promise to mankind, that he could speak about it as though it was already accomplished. Secondly, set the context here of the content of his song. Zechariah, the author, was under the influence of the Holy Spirit when he spoke these words. And the enemies to which he made reference, we understand, were essentially spiritual in nature. And that differed much from popular Jewish theology of the time. They thought of of God's foes as political or military foes. They looked at them in in, in kind of uh, real concrete terms in that way. But the fact of the matter is, and we understand it, don't we, because of the Holy Spirit's help, as, as these enemies being spiritual enemies, Satan himself and all of the forces of evil. That's our, that's our fight, Paul talks about. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against these spiritual forces in the dark places. The author is an interesting one, too, that God should choose him and choose him in in the setting that he does to share this song of salvation. You remember, don't you, about Zechariah? He and his wife Elizabeth were foretold. The angel Gabriel came, told them that they would have a child. They're old, past the time of childbearing, and Elizabeth had had not been able to bear children all of her adult life. And so it it came as a real shock when Gabriel said to Zechariah that he and his wife were going to have a child, and a very special child, a unique child in the history of, of mankind, because this child would be the forerunner of the Messiah. This is the one who would come to help prepare the people to receive the Messiah when he came and did his work. And Zechariah didn't believe it. How could this be? I'm an old man. My wife's an old woman. How, how can this be? And Gabriel said, basically, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit from Luke 1, well, this isn't my message to you. This is God's message to you. And so it will come to pass. And then he went on and he said, and because you've doubted, here's another sign to you. You're not going to speak audibly until after the baby is born. And so for over nine months, Zechariah hasn't spoken a single word out loud. 
I think, after writing his name is John, to, to tell the, the crowd of people what the, the baby boy's name would be, I think his tongue was loosed and, and that almost immediately, maybe even the very first words out of his mouth were these words that we're looking at this morning. This song of praise, this hymn, if you will, of, of, of exuberant joy to God for who he is and for what he has accomplished and what he will yet accomplish and that his own son could have a part in, in making the, the world ready for it. Well, these are, are his first words then, or close to it anyhow. Now, picture this. I'm not a big talker. My wife is a, I mean, she's, she's just a talkative person. I can't imagine her being silent for nine minutes. And I'm not trying to put her down. She'll be here for the second service. I'll, I'll say the same thing then. So you don't have to tattle on her if you know who she is. Or tattle on me, I should say. But can you imagine, even if you're not much of a talker, nine months of the inability to speak a word out loud? Can you imagine what that would have been like? Can you imagine the thoughts that ran through his head as, as his wife actually did become pregnant? as God continued to unfold and continued to work and to fulfill the prophecies with specific reference to John the Baptist? Can you imagine how much he wanted to speak? And now he gets the chance. And I think it just pours out of him, just gushes out of him. In fact... Verses 68 through 75, the verses I just read, in the original language, they are but one long, complex sentence. And then verses 76 through 80 are another long, complex, single sentence. So, everybody, take a big gulp of breath and see if you can read verses 68 through 75 without having to gulp for another breath. I couldn't do it. I I actually, silly enough, I tried. I got into somewhere in verse 72. But that's what it is for him. This pent-up enthusiasm. This desire as a priest of God to be able to speak forth and give explanation to what has been happening and what will yet happen. Praise be to the Lord. Blessed be our God. So let's consider then the main points of Zechariah's song, his hymn, to see the reasons for his praise and to see why he can and or why we can and should join with him and the saints of all the ages in singing or speaking this song of salvation. First of all, God has come. He has remembered his oath to Abraham. He has remembered his covenant to Israel. And the word remembered here is, is, is a much more active than, than we use the word remember. Uh, have you any, any of you ever forgotten anything? Be honest. Raise your hands. Okay, there's a couple who didn't raise their hands. My question to you would be, have you ever lied? We've all forgotten, right? 
You noticed when I, maybe you didn't, but this is true confession now. This is what I've carried my sermon notes up here in. I have a Bible. It's still on the desk in my office. I grabbed my notes yesterday, forgot my Bible. So now I've confessed that and I can get on with preaching. He has remembered. Now, when you remember something, it means it comes to your mind, right? It comes to your consciousness. You become aware of something. Maybe you hadn't thought about it for a while, but now you remember it. And yet, remembering it in that sense is pretty passive, is it not? You simply recall. You see, something comes back to your mind. You remembered it. But when, when Zechariah is speaking here about God remembering, it's a very practical word. It's a very active word. Because God not only remembered in the sense that He had it in mind, but He was also compelled to bring it to action. To bring it to fruition. And so His remembering is so active in that way. And that's one of the big reasons for us to give the praise to God that we're called to in this text. Because He has come. He has remembered to carry out His oath to Abraham and His covenant to Israel. And we are the beneficiaries of that. Jesus who came is also known as Emmanuel, which means God with us. God has not forgotten. He has remembered. He has carried out His promise. He has given to us a son. For to us, a son is born. To us, a child is given. And think of Zachariah's own situation, of his joy and the great privilege that is now his to share this message with those in the crowd that day. Everything, and I mean everything the angel had foretold, has come true as promised with respect to the birth of John the baptizer. And so he confidently realizes then that as God has fulfilled his promise specifically to Zechariah and Elizabeth in sending a child to them who for all their lives had been childless, and that this child then was, was truly a child of promise, he confidently realizes then that this child is going to have a special place in the whole song of redemption or salvation. And now he, who after nine months of silence has his tongue loose to speak, is able to tell the story. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. God has come. He has remembered. God has redeemed is the second main point I want to make this morning. Now the word redeem is from the Greek. Or, or the Greek word lutrosis. And that's a word that's much stronger than our English versions translate. I think... I think all, I don't remember now how many versions I checked, but they all said redeem. Now to redeem is to buy back. Now there are a few of you here that are as old as me or maybe even a little bit older. Do you remember, remember S&H green stamps? Or was it gold bond stamps? Or gold, yeah, gold bond. I remember maybe once a year 
We would drive 45 miles from Tioga, North Dakota to Williston, North Dakota, and we'd go to the Redemption Center. And for a couple nights before that, my mom would have my sister Lene and I licking all of those stamps and putting them in the books. And then we'd look through the catalogs that used to be mailed. Remember that? Now, I'll tell you something. The process of redeeming was a very positive experience. I mean, we might come home with a new living room lamp. Just thrilled me. Well, it was, you know, you went there to have your hopes dashed because I always hoped maybe we'd get an inflatable boat or something like that. But it was usually furniture. This word is much stronger than that. The Greek word lutrosis is more akin to our English word ransom. Now, when I think of ransom, I don't think of that as such a nearly positive or joyous experience. I mean, that's a price that you pay. That's a sacrifice that you make to get back something or someone that was yours in the first place. That's what God did when He sent His Son Jesus into this world. He paid the ransom for you and for me. We had been created initially in His image. We were living in relationship with Him, but through willful sin, lost that image of God and needed to be redeemed. We came under the power of Satan. But God, when the time was full, as Paul writes it, sent His Son into the world to be a a mortal (laughs) and to come into the world and give His life as a ransom. That's costly, isn't it? I can't imagine a, a higher cost than to give up your life or a higher cost to someone like to God the Father that He would be willing to give His Son. And why? To redeem you And me. I won't cast any aspersions on you. But I think God got a rotten deal. When he gave his son for me. And yet he did. Isn't that amazing? That's just utterly amazing. That was his love for us. God so loved the world. Loved it so much that He would give His Son as the ultimate gift to mankind. And it wasn't just, oh, here's a nice package to open up. No, it was for Jesus to go to the cross and in His body bear our sins and to hang on the tree, as Peter puts it in his first epistle. He has redeemed us. His coming to us led to His dying for us. And His people here, is a reference to all, to every individual who, by God's gift of faith to them, repent of their sins and personally trust in Christ as their Savior. Race, ethnic background, religious background, none of these things mean anything. All that matters is that those who are lost have been redeemed and by the gift of faith claim those benefits and trust in Jesus as their Savior. Once you were not a people. Now you are the people of God, Peter says in 1 Peter 2.10. Once you had not received mercy. Now 
you have received mercy and such a costly gift of mercy to us. Repentance and faith was the message of Zechariah's son, John, throughout his ministry. And no one was excused from that call to repentance and faith. And neither is anybody in our day excluded from it either. All of us need to be brought to that place of personal faith in Jesus. All of us need to confess and repent of our sins and to trust in Christ. The third point that I want to make this morning is the statement of of Zechariah here where he says in verse 69 that he, God, has raised up a horn of salvation for us. You know, when you think of horns or or antlers on an an animal, they're, they're a symbol of strength, aren't they? I've never seen it in real life, but I've seen it in videos numerous times where two rams butt their heads together. I mean, such strength. I don't know how they remain standing after how hard they hit each other sometimes. And yet, there's that strength depicted in those ram's horns as they butt each other in in that really powerful way. And those horns are displayed prominently. Well, in the sense of strength and and prominence. That's Jesus, isn't it? He is a horn raised up for us. By God's power, He has made salvation possible for us and our eyes need to be on Him who is the power of God for salvation. The manger, the ministry, the cross, the empty tomb are all open for inspection. Not physically, but through the Word. I mean, even in a physical sense, I suppose, when Jesus was born, it was true. Stables in Jesus' day and in communities were community property. They weren't privately owned. They were a place where numerous shepherds and and flock owners could bring their animals. It was a a community place in that sense. And that meant then that Mary and Joseph, who had had to have their baby in in that uh, stable, had no legal right to prevent anyone from entering the stable. No legal expectation of privacy as we hear so much about in our day. God invited those lowly shepherds to be the first ones to hear the message of the birth of the Christ. And God privileged them to be able to come and to worship this child in the manger. They found him just as promised. There he was, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And we're told that they worshipped him as, as their Savior. And they quickly went and spread the story to others. And yet, that little baby, helpless as he was, is truly the horn of salvation, isn't he? He is the power of God for your salvation and mine. Second thing I think of is, is, is when I think of a horn is that it's a symbol of, of beauty. It's, it's, it's the glory of the animal, if you will. Twice in my life, I've had the opportunity while deer hunting to get a shot or two at, at a true trophy buck. Just, you know, a huge rack. Got buck fever both times. I don't know if the animals are still living, but I know all I did was scare them a little bit. 
I can remember driving out a couple weeks beforehand and I'd take the family along and we'd go out to some of my favorite hunting areas and we'd drive around on little cow trails basically and every once in a while we'd see a buck and other kids would just get excited about that and if it was if it was you know more of a trophy type buck they'd even get more excited and then as we would drive on my wife would say and now you're going to go out and shoot that aren't you well Yep, I was going to try. <laughs> uh, well, that's, that's the, the way it is, though, that these horns are a symbol of beauty. They are the glory of the animal. And, and Jesus is the rose of Sharon, the rose of Bethlehem. He is a beauty to behold. Even though Isaiah said he'd have no form or, or comeliness that we should desire him, he is the one that I want to behold. He is the one on whom the eyes of faith will always focus. And he is truly the thing of beauty in our lives. Thirdly, the horn of salvation is a reference to the horns on the four corners of the Old Testament altar. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but when the altar, when the directions were given for the building of the altar, those four corner posts on the top, there was, it was carved out of that same piece of wood, a, a horn, like a ram's horn. And it served a special purpose. It reminded the, the people again that this was a place to find mercy. That, that this altar was a place where mercy would prevail, not just sacrifice. That sacrifice had a, had a very personal and, and, and powerful effect. On at least two occasions in the Old Testament, we're told of two men who came to the, to the altar. Adonijah had tried to set himself up as king in Solomon's place. And when he realized his mistake and he realized the danger to himself, we're told that he fled to the temple and he clung to the horn of salvation on one of the corner posts there. And he was spared. He was forgiven. He found mercy and was able to continue living. To him, to go and to cling to that, to that horn was to admit his own personal guilt but he also expressed his faith that as he clung to that horn, mercy would be his. And that's what we see as we come to Jesus, the horn of salvation, that it is in him that we come to cling and by faith receive that mercy and the salvation that he earned for us. We come admitting our guilt and our need. We come trusting that salvation is available through Jesus and Him alone. And that enables us to leave forgiven, renewed, and in relationship with God. Note these themes of mercy, rescue, and enablement in Zechariah's song. In verse 72, it says that He did this to show mercy to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. In verse four or 74, it says that He did this to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and then to enable us to serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. When Zechariah 
shouted forth this song of salvation. He spoke of spiritual redemption. When he spoke forth, he spoke of spiritual rescue. And so, if you are a believer today, then you can sing this same song with the same conviction, the same joy, and the same hopefulness as Zechariah did. And you and I can join in with the saints of all the ages. And so my question to you this morning is, can you sing it? Can you sing this song of salvation? Is what is represented in here and now as fulfilled prophecy, is it the most important truth in your life? What was your excitement for this Christmas season? Was it some certain gift under the, under the Christmas tree? Or was it as it should be to be renewed again in the gift of gifts, the Christ child, the Savior born to you? Here we are on the last day of the year, on the threshold of a new year. My question to you is, what is your source of hope for the new year? Is it the strong stock market? I believe it was strong back in 2007, too, before my retirement account took about a 45% hit. <laughs> we can't trust in men. We can't trust in human agencies. Our hope is in Him alone. And He who came once and gave His life will come again for us to take us to be with Him for all eternity. That, that, friends, is our hope. And so I pray that for you today, it is true that your excitement for Christmas was, of, was because of Jesus and that your hope for the new year is wrapped up in Jesus and Jesus alone. Because if that's true, then this song you can sing and it's meant to be sung from the heart, not by heart, but from the heart. And it's my prayer that you can and do sing it now and that you will continue to sing it for all eternity. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and the Holy Spirit, as it was and always will be, world without end. Amen.